turns out he's a major cinephile. They don't watch enough movies! It's a very simple formula! And here we go. We took a little slasher break last week. Love to see it and get back to the roots of this podcast. But if it's not that, it must be a superhero thing. And we still have to finish out Phase 3's two-parter Marvel Cinematic Universe episodes to get you all caught up before we get our first taste of Phase 4 Marvel movie magic in Black Widow, which is just a little over a month away. So while we are going by movie release dates and not chronological order, this phase really challenges watching these movies that way. But there are some of the strongest entries in this supersized 11 movie phase. Today we will take on the final of the original Captain America trilogy, aka Avengers 2.5, more musical bops from the Guardians of the Galaxy sequel, a few more mythical Marvel entries introducing the second Sherlock actor to the superhero franchise, plus the closest thing we will get to a Hulk sequel. You'll have to wait for Infinity War, Endgame, and more, but something to look forward to next week. But up, up, and away we go to this week's exciting episode. Captain America Civil War, coming out in 2016, this movie kicked off Phase 3. It's less of a Captain America movie, but a precursor to the next full-fledged Avengers movie. It is packed with almost all of the MCU actors you have grown to know and love from the first two phases. It also gives us our first look at both Chadwick Boseman's Black Panther and Tom Holland's Spider-Man. Both huge moments for MCU fans alike. This movie also got some deeper connective tissues into the MCU, relating and going way back to that 2008 Incredible Hulk, reintroducing William Hunt's Thaddeus Ross, even if he never gets to interact with the Hulk actor. While I really like to call this an Avengers movie, it is clear early on that they are going for a Captain America thread with more super soldiers. Like I talked about in my Falcon and the Winter Soldier episode, that point of conflict in Captain America will always be interlinked. Fingers crossed, Captain America 4 will find a different angle to take. And if you haven't heard my MCU TV show episodes on that show and WandaVision, make sure to get on them prior to Loki airing soon. This movie tries to have a few villains floating around. Great to see Frank Grillo back in a more comic-accurate outfit this time around, and the beginning is a bit smaller scale compared to some of the explosive nature of other Avengers movies. But it's semi-stealth combat scene with a smaller scale Avengers mini-team. It looks beautiful with the action going on and the tension of a potential huge contagion issue, something we can all appreciate even more now. I've been watching Strain recently on Hulu, and man, that would have been the perfect early pandemic quarantine show highly recommended with mcu actor corey soul in the lead for that one how about that it also has uh filch from harry potter so a few fun actor nods in the beginning of the movie this four member team of our captain america group from his last soul outing is back plus wanda is along for the ride while you would expect hawkeye at least Or, if they wanted the big guns, maybe bring Vision along for the ride for anything of suspicious note. Bad planning. In this first 10 minutes or so, we already have an awesome mano-a-mano fight between Chris Evans and Frank Grillo. Slowing that after the awesome elevator fight, we missed out on a bit with the end who he went against in combat going with Anthony Mackie. Thankfully, this is a fun, good-looking fight with a dot 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 explosive end i cracked myself up the marvel jokes are here still but somehow they feel less intrusive and annoying wonder why the inciting incident in the comic version of civil war may be a a better more dramatic end and even the overall arc might be better you know there's way more drama and gore overall in that war but they don't have to worry about actor contracts and more when writing comics instead of movies. And the overall build to civilian casualties works for the most part. Blaming the first movie Avengers New York City destruction feels a bit dumb, knowing that really wasn't their fault. But with Ultron Sokovia, the DC destruction from the Winter Soldier movie, and now Lagos, it does feel super similar to Batman vs Superman, albeit a more fleshed out product 
being not the second movie in the series to come out at that point. There's a welcome surprise besides Grillo to also have John Slattery once again reprise his role as the older version of Howard Stark. And this also leads to the pretty good-looking de-aging process on Robert Downey Jr. with special effects. I mean, it looked great in Ant-Man as well with Michael Douglas. While throwing Gwyneth Paltrow to the sides once again, bit of a letdown until her surprise return in Spider-Man. This scene that not only instills that, but his whole speech at MIT giving everyone funding. Such a cool moment, not necessarily in the moment, but seeing all the reframing of that moment from Quentin Beck's The Mysterio character, from his perspective... It's such a cool, different take, and down the road, that's a, a fun way, as the, the kind of the epilogue to the Infinity War saga. One thing that is a bit weird in this movie, and kind of with the Netflix MCU connections, is that they're fairly loose. Having Alfre Woodard play a small role here, while playing a huge role as one of the big bads in Luke Cage, I don't know if people would have ever thought, oh, is that the same character? But it's always going to be a bit weird having the same actor play two roles. People are for sure wondering the same notion about Gemma Chen, who had a small role in Captain Marvel, but will seemingly have a lead, if not the lead role, in the soon coming out for us in film, I believe in November, The Eternals. While you may not recognize the duality in both these, it's weird to think about having an actor play multiple MCU roles, especially if they're two MCU movies, not just a... TV show that's not even on the Disney Plus platform and beyond. After a few teases to Wakanda, it's nice to see that payoff, especially after Age of Ultron, and the tie they have to bring this important new land into the forefront of the MCU, having that tragedy while they're on outreach. It makes the whole MCU world feel bigger and better. As someone who feels better about the Hulk movie than maybe most, especially the first two-thirds of it, it really is nice to see General Ross, but seeing him interact or even mention Ruffalo's Hulk, what could have been connected there? Like I said, I'm not a comic expert, but the initial Civil War issue was superheroes' identities and being registered, something that was kind of utilized in the original X-Men movies, which, as you know, for the most part, I liked. The conflict here is more about jurisdiction, which, while not as riveting, it works for this world, where for the most part, no one really has a secret identity somehow. Spider-Man was one of the last, and he just lost it in the most dramatic post credit scene for the MCU to date. Deleted scene Nick here, the intro to Daniel Brühl's Zemo, who got a strong second wind in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, had an initial introduction that was a bit bland here, but a deleted scene showing how he acquired the famous Winter Soldier control book it was not utilized and that is a true crime. Having him sneak into a war criminal's black market auction and his charisma, saying that he has in spades in Inglorious Bastards, and murdering everyone just to take this tool and ultimately start off on his revenge plan. This is much better than breaking into some Hydra guy's house and finding it in the wall. Another potentially odd moment is the realization that Emily Van Camp from the last Captain America film is related to Agent Carter, his current crush. I mean, there's some oddities there of familiar ties being a little too close. While Haley Atwell's not in this movie, her presence is felt here. But this movie giving Captain America romantic ties to his former lover's niece, especially with how the MCU ends that story of Agent Carter and Steve Rogers together in an alternate reality, and how the TV show does Sharon Carter dirty, this part will always feel a bit off but at least she gets some time back to do things in this movie. And this movie question gives us everything we would want in the first Black Panther sighting. And this movie is as much of a precursor for Bozeman's Marvel arc and Black Panther as the overall Avengers conflict. This movie plays with the idea of not having a true villain. Sure, Zemo does some things, but you could say Bucky is a bad guy. You could argue Iron Man, Black Panther, or Captain America. The choices are endless. I think this film is better for it. And the action comes at you fast. There's so many good set-piece moments that exist. From a chase down a busy highway, introducing Black Panther, 
the pacing and intensity is something to behold. And calling Black Panther Catman will never not be funny. While a good chunk of this movie, the best parts might be action, some of the more political ideals debates actually do a lot to flesh out these characters. And this movie does a great job continuing that mistrust and divide between Captain America and Iron Man. While it does take a while to see that Iron Man in full gear, his mini glove suit up, like all his scenes of suiting up, will never not be cool. One scene in this movie that tries really hard to be cool, but comes off a little silly, has to be Captain America pretty much holding a helicopter in place with his sheer muscles. I will never not think that scene, like Chris Redfield punching a boulder, which we mention a fair amount of these episodes. I've been watching a lot of Resident Evil Village after all. You know, that moment will never not feel a little goofy. While this movie is about a numerous amount of characters, new, old, and slightly new, everyone was probably as ecstatic as me for a Spider-Man in the MCU. Tobey Maguire had some good moments. The third Spider-Man, not it. Hilarious dancing, not it. Andrew Garfield went one for two, but this younger, more kid-based Spider-Man, less dramatic, breezing past the Uncle Ben power responsibility stuff, and immediately bonding this character to Iron Man for a father figure connection that works so very well love to see it it takes ages to see hawkeye again something that the mcu continues to do to the arrow shooting guy but overall it's nice to have some small build on both the wanda hawkeye relationship as well as setting some very slow and gentle romantic strings in place for that wandavision romance wandavision and while no huge ties happen for Ant-Man and the rest of the Avengers, Paul Rudd as the main jokester works super well. While it takes some time for the big fight, arguably the most visually exciting fight is not the final one. The idea of a war is a bit misleading, especially with only 12 people and none of them dying here. But every character has awesome action-specific style moments. And while the Endgame and Infinity War fights might add more characters and bigger moments. This fight just looks so good, and all the characters being known, and no grunt people to fight. It feels massive and action-packed. This part of the movie alone makes this one of the greatest of the MCU. While the sad moment, it was crazy to see in theaters, but having Don Shittle's character live, which while I loved it, feels like the movie was pulling its punches a bit and needed to make some sort of side effect from the war, not so much a casualty. While not a slight on the movie itself, there is something missing in no real connection to Tony Stark and Hank Pym. While Tony and Scott Lang, the new Ant-Man, interact and Hank Pym made a dig at the Stark family, there could have been some cool lineage talk here that we will never see. When Tony visits the super cool underwater prison, where I would have loved to have seen some small MCU villain tease moments in the prison too, that scene where Paul Rudd says never trust a Stark, it could have had a tease of a stronger connection and now it will never be. The big end, for starters, having Iron Man actually duke it out with Captain America and Bucky. That alone looks awesome and the way this three person fight ends up looking is great itself. The best part of this overall is the added scene with John Slattery and having Bucky kill his Tony Stark's parents when brainwashed. Two guys who knew each other from World War II, trying to not get killed. What a conflict that once again shaped the MCU's Avengers group for years to come. Amazing MCU entry overall. Honestly, from this point on, most of these MCU movies don't really touch on the everyday world of the Avengers. Instead, they go off to space or other mythical lands, and the 2016 film Doctor Strange, no exception. There's a brief tease to his name in Captain America and the Winter Soldier. Other than that, this movie is kind of its own beast. Whole new cast of characters are likewise here. The titular lead being Bendit Cumberbatch, who around the tail end of his Sherlock stint, I'm sure everyone was excited for him in the role. Chiwetel Ejiofor takes on the trope of the good guy turned bad, 
Benedict Wong honestly steals a show for me in this movie. Madsen Mikkelsen is once again outstanding in the bad guy role. I feel like Rachel McAdams gets kind of the women of Thor treatment when they run out of things to do with her. Hopefully she gets a bit more in the sequel, but with how stuffed it is, I'm not too optimistic. I'm sure the biggest controversy is Tilda Swinton as the mentor character, the Ancient One. Honestly, this character was similar enough to the role in the 2005 Constantine film, so it wasn't a shock, but the casting was a bit of a surprise. So for starters, this movie kicks off with some strong, tense action, not just a mythology lesson. And while Marvel will never be R-rated, maybe the Deadpools will see on the future of that, it's not going to be aggressively violent. But having a way to sneak in a magical beheading in this opening scene, like that one Captain America propeller blade blood spot, those two moments have always stuck with me for how far they could go. And this movie really has some amazing, awesome action and surprising amount of intensity. This is all helped, of course, by the musical stylings of Rogue One composer Michael Giacchino. While Wanda's magic was neat, the whole way they make magic in this movie just looks super cool. And this paved the way for those full magical styling shows of WandaVision. Thankfully, these two characters will be put together in that Strange 2 movie. Benedict Cumberbatch's American accent, while not bad, will always be mad jarring. Just a thought that I had to share that I'm sure we all at least, if not agree with, notice. With the tenuous introduction of Iron Man and Doctor Strange in that first Infinity Wars movie, it's funny how similar the two Sherlock Holmes actors are both pre-superhero introduction event. Cocky rich guys who are leading in their field who are a bit too self-absorbed. I actually like the fall from grace even further and more with Stephen Strange. Tony still kind of has it all and has a clear path. Strange here has a wild journey that leads him to Nepal. And with not too many globetrotting MCU movies, it was nice to see a non-New York City or Cali landscape to have a chunk of our story in. While the training montage is not bad, there is just not as much going on in this movie compared to the massive list of events and characters in the previous entry alone. But what this movie lacks in some action, the mystical effects here, super cool. And the brief tour of all the magical realm parts, it's a trip. Hopefully you're cool with bright flashing lights, because if you're not, that will not be good. While we are finally getting into the multiverse officially now for the MCU, both the DCU and Arrowverse are doing it. So it's the next big thing, and the next Doctor Strange movie will dive into this further along with the third part of Spider-Man. While there was a bit of a goof fake-out with the multiverse in Spider-Man Far From Home with Quentin Beck, in this movie, the Ancient One actually name-drops it as a place and concept where they all get their magic power from. This is the first time I picked up on this tidbit that will finally bloom to fruition soon on the big screen. It does take a good amount of time to get a look at the next Infinity Stone, something that had fallen by the wayside a bit in the MCU, and this was the fifth of six now in play, and eventually leading up to the Infinity Wars endgame conflict. It is strange how much they talk on the time travel issue in those late Avenger movies, and lo and behold, they do so much with time in those movies, and even break it off at the end. We will see if that Loki show and further MCU entries make time and space a true concern, specifically that Ant-Man movie should be introducing Kang the Conqueror, who's a big time-traveling villain. Played by the lead from Lovecraft Country. So, how about that? Jonathan Majors. The fights really are so much cooler here, and I love the physical stuff and explosives and all that, but just cinematically, this movie is just cool. And we all know the villain problem Marvel has. And with Kaecilius, may not be up there with Thanos, Loki, Killmonger, and the Vulture, there's a real nice moment of understanding with his motivations. While well, at times he is clearly the basic evil guy and just wrong, there is some understanding of him not being completely wrong in his feelings. The distrust of the Ancient One is not fully wrong or untrue. It just helps to have that over just taking over the world or being evil, even if there is some of that. While Rachel McAdams, one of the stronger parts of the weakest season of True Detective, does not do a ton in this movie. The surgery scene with his astral self-fighting while his real body's getting medical treatment, it once again looks awesome. And like Gwyneth Paltrow in Iron Man, 
She's clearly a help in taking out a bad guy, not the main bad guy like those movies, but you can't expect a surgeon nurse person to take on the epitome of evil, magical beings. I don't know if this will lead to a romantic relationship, but having this person that we, the viewer, can see this magic world through, it all works. I just don't know how we will get to a medical setting after all this magic and these world-ending events. I mean, clearly they could keep needing people to be healed like they did twice in this movie. Killing the Ancient One was a bold choice this early, but they had to make Bendix the Sorcerer Supreme ASAP. Honestly, while this movie wasn't crazy dark, with the horror aspects seemingly being brought up into the sequel, I can't wait for these illusions and building altering magic to take on that horror feel. Honestly, I don't know how many people think of Doctor Strange as an MCU movie entry, but this is easily the prettiest movie, and I'm amazed I don't watch this more. The end is a bit different for Marvel movies, not ending with a true battle, but that kind of works here, even if Dormammu, the overall big bad, who could return in the MCU later, comes off as just a big floating head. Not the most exciting, but the time manipulation angle overall is a fun new direction for the franchise, and Benedict Cumberbatch who was perfectly cast in the role. They also had one of the more impactful post-credit scenes with Mordo being seen going on his descent to villain, and that caps off a very good, not as mainstream MCU property. So coming off the first Guardians of the Galaxy film, the sequel Volume 2 from 2017, has a lot of the same main cast. Thankfully, Michael Roker gets even more time in the role. The big ad, of course, is Kurt Russell. The eventual father mystery of Peter Quill, aka Chris Pratt, is solved here. The whole actual villain thing is done up pretty well here, but we will get into that much more. The big fun ad, which felt more like a cameo, was Sylvester Stallone as another Ravager space guy. And his whole crew is loaded with cameos, including Michael Rosenbaum, from the Somebody Save Me Smallville show, and the voice of Miley Cyrus. While their roles are brief at best, if they could ever bring that team into the fray, maybe Guardians 3 or beyond, that would be something. While characters are important, some would say the music in this movie series is even more important. Guardians of the Galaxy has music as an important part of the franchise's DNA. It may not be the most important thing on the same level as the Westworld series' mainstream orchestral cover songs being it, but still. While the individual songs of note, specifically hooked on a feeling and come and get your love, may be the best of this franchise, the overall soundtrack might actually be better for the sequel film. The big songs of note have to be Brandy, Come a Little Closer, and so many more. This specific movie, I will be touching on how some amazing songs are used, and how they add to the plot and narrative. Even the beginning of this movie finds a way to quickly use one of the best songs that becomes a recurring theme throughout the film in that Brandy song. This movie at times has the cinematic hardcore music you would come to expect from a space drama. Every so often, this movie drifts into the more serious, and more so, even somber. But it always has a way of bringing you right back in. I mean, this movie finds an amazing way to use the credits in such a way to show a huge set-piece fight. So that could be a focus on a different movie. Instead, this is just a way to play another catchy oldie song in Mr. Blue Sky and choose a fun, new, unique perspective to show the fight from. And it's the aptly named Baby Groot's perspective, which is a, a treasure to behold. Who, while not the same... From the first movie, I love adult Vin Diesel. You cannot like this version. Teen Groot from the Infinity War Endgame movies is a bit whatever. They are so quickly able to capture the best parts of this movie. The fun, the action, the quirkiness, and everything else that makes this so unique for the MCU and just space movies. The big question I wonder is with Volume 1 and 2 soundtracks being integral to the plot. The first being from his childhood. The second being the soundtrack given to Chris Pratt's character on his mom's deathbed. With the third movie on the way. There isn't really another plot device to add more music to the diegetic world itself. There is a Zune moment that might do something, but it's not as personal. The music wasn't curated by that person, even if it did come from his adoptive dad. So there's some stakes to it. While our time with the new alien race, the Sovereign, is brief, the big news from this is the eventual intro, not seen yet, to a powerful name brand character in Adam Warlock. 
while they also still have to introduce Nova at some point, with that whole planet seemingly wiped out by Thanos, they have a lot to do that is not specifically announced yet. That being said, I am hopeful for these rumors of this being the role to finally bring Keanu Reeves into the MCU. Just a rumor, but a really nice one. For the most part, I think the jokes land in this movie, and in this franchise. Some of them are a bit too dumb for my liking, but as far as quirky jokes, the Guardians does pretty well. A much better use of them, especially with a more tilted percentage of jokes over most Marvel movies. But I will never watch Age of Ultron the same way again. It's not always easy to cast parents of main characters, but someone did something right with making Kurt Russell Chris Pratt's dad. It just looks and feels right. It does take a bit to get to our final recurring main character in Yondu, and this movie does so much so well for him, way more than the first movie. It shows his pain and loneliness without his adoptive son or a deeper lore building of his exile from the larger Ravager group. And I love his brief interactions with Sylvester Stallone. And if he isn't doing Rocky movies, he sure has to be doing a Guardians movie or some spin-off. Also, while it is super brief, some of the deeper ties, be it David Hasselhoff mentioned and his likeness scene, or just once again including Howard the Duck, a character too weird to have his own modern movie. Fun fact, Seth Green is that voice. I think the arc overall of parentage and what being a parent means in such a unique angle for a superhero movie to take. The parent triangle plays out with Kurt Russell, Michael Roker, and Chris Pratt. While it feels like this movie specifically loves to torture Roker's character, incapacitating him and sending all of the characters except one who he cares about into space to die, some of the most somber moments any MCU movie could give us. Seeing a trail of dead bodies frozen in space, I mean, that is a harrowing moment for something that is known for flying around in snappy one-liners and laser blasts. This movie is easily one of the most emotional movies on so many levels. Be you a parent, someone who's had a difficult upbringing with a pseudo-parent, surprisingly deep moments for an MCU movie that has talking trees and raccoons. And while the script is beautiful and some amazing music is going to accompany it, the visuals, especially on Ego's Planet, it all just looks like so good. You wonder if there's ever going to be any ties to Ego being a Celestial and eventually the Eternals to be seen soon enough in theaters this month. The whole dichotomy and balance of the Titan versions and Thanos and these higher up beings and what that connection could eventually look like. While there are some super sad moments in the MCU, especially bullying Baby Groot, we hate that, but this does eventually lead to one of the best moments of the movie. Besides the fun of watching Baby Groot try to figure out what he is looking for, the Yandu arrow scene was small in the first movie, and it wasn't the most fun, it was more action-packed. But having a full-on ship battle, exploding it, and sending this arrow out to kill everyone aboard, all with diegetic existing in the world music, to a song that just feels right to come a little bit closer as an arrow gets a bit closer to all through the villainous traitor crew members leading to just Yandu, the Guardians of the Galaxy, and Sean Gunn's brother, of course. Knowing that his character is is not back for the franchise after this, having some big action set piece moment is all the more important to give Roker's character some highlight moment to cap his MCU time off. Overall, I feel like Nebula's usage in this movie, even more so than the first is marginally important at best. I feel like she's used more to move the plot forward than as an actual character. Her revenge arc is a bit of a repetitive story beat, but I guess I do love the interesting eventual angle they take with these two sisters through the final Infinity Saga films. I feel like the best parts of this movie are the lead-up moments. The pile of dead kid skulls is pretty dark, and the whole moment of that realization as dad killed his mom by giving her a tumor. Holy hell, that is insanely dark. The unfortunate part of this movie is the big bad fight and conflict are they're a bit whatever, especially with the generic Earth being assimilated scene. The big warning sign to bad movies is a generic disaster movie. The shiny gold people are back for another brief and unimportant role, and while it's fun to have the whole eight-member Guardians group in action flying around blowing up stuff, arguably, while the end is a bit generic especially for the genre. You feel like it's a bit by the numbers. The best part of this movie is not that big final fight, although there is something irreverent 
and feeling exactly like what you'd expect Star-Lord to do with nostalgia making his god powers conjure up a fighting Pac-Man. That will never not be funny. But the best moment is the actually big sacrifice of Michael Roker's character to save Chris Pratt's lead at the very end. From fighting and killing his evil birth dad to losing his adoptive dad who helped raise him to be the person he is, sacrificing himself to save his version of a son he never had. That moment made me almost tear up. And not just today, every single time I've seen this movie. Like the first movie before it, there's a ton of emotional stakes in this movie. And pairing that death with its long-lasting effects on our lead, and that quote about, he may have been your father, but he wasn't your daddy, that emotional line of seeing Michael Roker freeze to death in space, especially with all of his crew members having just done it maybe 45 minutes prior to the scene. It's such a moment. And seeing his death being honored by the Ravagers who had exiled him, that beautiful fireworks display, and accompanied with some somber and reflective Cat Stevens music, which fits so well. The song Father and Son really sums up the main stakes of this film. And it was a great way to end a really strong movie. The emotional moments were just better than some of the action parts in the final third. Last fun fact, so many of these characters will return in James Gunn's DC film The Suicide Squad, including Stallone, Roker, Nathan Fillion, who had a brief role in the first Guardians, and of course, his brother Sean Gunn. It's a shame that the Spider-Man MCU movies are not yet available on Disney+. It could come as soon as the end of 2021. Why not move Spider-Man Homecoming from 2017 over to Disney+, Plus before the end of that year, to get that jump on theaters and streaming viewers for that third film in the trilogy but for viewing purposes unless you have fubo tv you're gonna need to pay to rent or like me buy a hard copy this movie is honestly the iron man sequel that we were hoping for since the first of these movies came out way back in 2008 iron man 2 and 3 were a bit up and down and while this is for sure the peter parker story once again played by tom holland to perfection Iron Man fans will be happy to see the return of Robert Downey Jr. as well as franchise returns for both Jon Favreau and Gwyneth Paltrow, which we're both overdue. New ads include Zendaya, whose fame blossomed after this franchise and The Greatest Showman musical. The deeper humor ads of Hannibal Burris, Donald Glover, and Martin Starr add to the overall levity not present in most Marvel movies. That feels as natural as it does. This is easily the most grounded of these films, especially with Endgame stakes. And it plays super well into that role. There are some larger MCU ties with a cute Captain America cameo, as well as a fantastic Captain America older cameo, with Kenneth Choi playing the descendant of his World War II character from that first Avenger movie. The biggest ad, of course, is Michael Keaton returning to the superhero genre for the first time since either Batman Returns or Birdman, depending on what you're counting. So with a foil-loaded cast that has deep MCU ties, but as its own thing, this movie kind of kicks off on a great note. While we are not going to compare too much to the other Spider-Man live-action movies here, saving that for another episode, it may peak up a bit. For starters, this movie has one of the most likable and realized villains in the entire Marvel lore. It's a guy who's trying to do right by his family and the guys who work for him. And while Keaton in this role is trying to do his best for his kid, a government group comes in and puts him in financial hardship. While this is partly due to Tony Stark, unintentionally, he's created another enemy, like Iron Man 3, but way less to blame. But you have some sympathies for this character in Adrian Toomes. While he will have some small role in Morbius, we really need more of him with Spider-Man. While there... Like some of the other movies in Phase 3, are some serious and emotional moments. This movie has an innate ability to be funny, partly due to the doubling down on the Paul Rudd Ant-Man character. The jokes almost work better here with our version of Spider-Man clearly being one of the youngest we have seen, and the movie is better for it with a young, awkward teen. Starting off his story with a home movie from the previous film with him all about the Civil War airport battle. They did something great here with POV filming, something the ill-fated first version of Justice League, the vastly inferior one, did with middling results. We'll try not to think too much on the non-Snyder cut version. The recut canon of Peter being the kid from Iron Man 2 with the mask and glove trying to emulate his hero, perfect accident. Much better than the two Infinity Gloves explanation coming up soon. 
and building this sidekick role with him and Tony Stark, it never feels weird or too much to step on the Spider-Man story. But building this story into the MCU lore, it's sensationally done. While I'm a fan of Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man and the Andrew Garfield one from the first movie only, this movie feels like it captures the high school version of the character way more than either of those, especially since they went from a late 20s looking high school kid to college and getting married with the Maguire version. This younger version of the character just feels like it makes sense. And the Peter Parker everyday student side is so well done here. Even if we may never get the journalist version, the idea of his arc to maybe being an Iron Man way more than the kid from Iron Man 3. It's a really exciting narrative. And in general, all the school scenes are goofy enough and feel like something you'd watch like Save by the Bell or whatever school sitcoms exist. My mind goes to Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide. Like I've said time and time again, those aren't really my things. I feel like overall you can't not watch this movie and just smile from the joy of watching everyday Spider-Man solve these regular crimes. The -the run-of-the-mill stuff is fun, but his trailer-teased fight with bank robbers in Avengers Mask, it's those little attention-to-detail moments you have to love. Like, get him Batman with that doll from Shazam, or the Batman criminal masks from Suicide Squad. While the Captain America moments are brief here, not unlike the best part of Thor Dark World, his fitness and detention videos, as well as their reaction to everyone in the world about them, saying I think he's a war criminal now, but whatever comedy gold. While I've discussed the pros and cons of comic accurate costumes, the Vulture, the main bad guy here, is not a good looking comic accurate villain. Thankfully they went with a cool and menacing semi-mechanical version of the character. Not an Iron Man knockoff, but more of a street version of that. Something that would fit right with the Netflix MCU characters, or a little bit bigger than that. The whole Keaton villain plan of staying under the radar, it all fits right at home with this smaller scale story being told. Like somehow they made an amazing coming of age story with love, discovering yourself. There really is so much good here for anyone and everyone to watch. And the set piece moments, while it may be tough for anything to compare to the McGuire train scene, just seeing Spider-Man at the Washington Monument and having his own train-like scene, the boat scene is still pretty awesome, especially with the Iron Man moment within it, Those MCU deeper ties, beautiful. And with any good coming-of-age story, besides the love story moments, there will always be that low point. And in this movie, it's Spider-Man almost having that epic victory, saving the day, foiling the bad guys, and instead having that failure moment and that loss of his Spider-Man identity. I know it's only temporary, as we know, together as viewers. It's still a powerful moment. And that is a nice moment of getting the... Peter Parker part and just getting him to be a kid again. I never thought of this genre as one of the main parts. You have science fiction and heists, but this coming of age story is done so well. This will always be a big, strong representation of live action Spider-Man. While Into the Spider-Verse already has an Aaron Davis and Miles Morales cast. While those are not MCU movies, the hope is for Aaron Davis's cameo from Donald Glover to not be a one-off with more time in New York for No Way Home. You gotta hope there will be some way to bring it all to play here. In the same way that Better Call Saul fans will recognize Michael Mando as Nacho, here is this villain who is kind of a brief role as a precursor to Scorpion, another eventual Spider-Man villain. The Sinister Six is up for debate being an MCU or Sony production. Biggest issue with the shared rights and movie elements. With Craven being played by Aaron Taylor Johnson along with a Tom Hardy Venom, the Keaton Vulture, the seemingly dead Mysterio played by Jake Gyllenhaal, the Sinister Six and Spider-Man villains will be a very curious development that will hopefully come to fruition in the connected MCU and Sony can be there too. When we finally get to the big reveal of who the Vulture really is, That initial moment of fun, lighthearted prom, you know, to a door open scene with our main villain, the music just cuts out. That culture shock was such a surprise. And it's not just one-sided. Cinematically, one of the strongest subtle moments here is having a red traffic light and eventually shifting it to a green light when Keaton finally figures out that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. That moment is amazing. Keaton is really good here as the villain. I mean... He was also one of the best Batmans. I can't wait to see what he does 
coming from that Flash multiverse DC moment, but I also want all those Snyder Cut air cuts and make all that happen too. And finding a way to make not one, but two fun fights at the end, one being pretty brief. Neither one's going to be the most epic, but that makes complete sense for our story. Things are a bit grittier overall. And while character costumes aren't the most important for everyone, maybe Iron Man, but I think Spider-Man having multiple comic-accurate costumes from his beginner, goofy outfit with a sweatshirt, to the Tony Stark upgraded one, eventually the Iron Spider is teased. I mean, this is all doubled down in the second Spider flick. And speaking of good-looking things, this movie just has some beautiful special effects. The tech gadgets and alien tech look super cool. And the callback to things like an arm from the crossbone suit repurposed, or any of the Chitauri stuff. This is a love letter to the overall MCU, and a great homecoming for the web-slinger. Thankfully, they decided to keep Keaton alive and not just kill off one of their more, better-developed villains of the MCU. And while this story is of Peter Parker, just uh, the right amount of Iron Man, that last big end moment, we'd almost, you know, had an Avenger press conference and finally introducing Gwyneth Paltrow as Pepper Potts back into the MCU, which was super important before those last two Avengers movies and their marriage proposal finally happening, even the joke of holding onto the ring since 2008. It was just a huge moment that was finally needed to be seen. That and the final Zendaya reveal to be the version of MJ we needed to see the final Spider-Man fleshed out universe world moment. One end note, being the last time we see Avengers Tower, with it seemingly being purchased by someone else, I can't wait to see if it will be the new Fantastic Four Baxter building, or could be Oscorp, I would love to get that Willem Dafoe version back into the fray. So back to Disney Plus available films to close out this episode. This early on in Phase 3, so many of these movies are out of chronological order. Guardians Volume 2 comes out right after Guardians 1. Two to three of these movies could be the one immediately following Civil War. Doctor Strange could be anywhere. I kind of like the idea of that being right before this film, the 2017 Thor Ragnarok. I kind of see Ragnarok as the pre-Infinity Wars Avenger film. It may not be as packed as Civil War was, but this is the other third of that original core six-member team. Also, that new Black Widow film, while technically Phase 4, will for sure be chronologically belonging somewhere over the early Phase 3 timeline. So like I said previously, while this is a Thor movie, obviously this is also the closest thing we may ever get to a solo Hulk film, the follow-up from 2008, even if it's more a character exploration instead of a really building on that story. But besides Mark Ruffalo joining the fray, the full ensemble of Thor characters are back, well, minus Natalie Portman's Jane Foster and Jamie Alexander Sif. Tom Hindleston, Idris Elba, and Anthony Hopkins are all back. Brief cameo of Doctor Strange, especially with how he interacts with the other wizard character in Loki. Hilarious. It was teased in the post credit scene of Doctor Strange. It might be brief here as well, a little longer than that. But once again, these are those nice deep MCU ties of not knowing who could show up in what. The big new ads are Kate Blanchett, Carl Urban, who this time is not just killing all the soups, Tess Thompson, and of course, the best part of any movie he's in, Jeff Goldblum. While he will always be known for his Jurassic Park role, a role he will be returning to for the latest trilogy conclusion, there's always this notion of him never really acting. Moreover, he's just being his amazing quirky self and saying lines that work with the story he's living in. Also, while his role is brief here, Clancy Brown really does have a majestic voice that is perfect for these villain roles. While his brief role was wasted in the Nightmare on Elm Street reboot that we discussed in last week's episode, Thoris changes tone with each entry, from more serious mystical romp, with some time spent on Earth, to a fairly bad movie, to this entry, which is a little less high fantasy and very epic rock with headbanging, Norse mythology Viking things, and just it's overall bigger. The soundtrack alone has a ton of elements of that power rock with a couple Led Zeppelin song hits. I mean, Thor fighting in a mystical plane, which is his equivalent of hell to that Led Zeppelin song. I mean, any Led Zeppelin song is pretty good. And while those moments are of course littered in the franchise, there is also going to be that trademark Marvel humor. 
and this new edition of acting out a scene from the previous movie, something Frozen 2 did to perfection via Josh Gad. This movie got Matt Damon to play actor Thor, got Thor's real-life other brother Luke Hemsworth to play actor him, and another Jurassic series veteran, Sam Neill, was actor Odin. This was such a lovely, divergent path and gag for the series. Thankfully, it will be in the next film as well, with a actor version of Hela as well, played, I believe, by Melissa McCarthy. Taika Waititi just has a knack for putting his own stamp on things, be they his acting or writing. His list of works is extensive, from what we do in The Shadows to Jojo Rabbit, and of course his acting role in this movie is super quirky and fun. Still waiting to see what his role be in that Suicide Squad movie, which seemingly has everyone in it. This movie does have a lot going on, and a lot of different varying plot points. It can go from fantasy epic in one moment to a glam rock adventure the next. At times, the muddled nature of Hela as the big bad gets a little lost, with the fun adventures on the space gladiator world with Jeff Goldblum overshadowing it a little bit. I mean, her evil introduction of breaking seemingly one of the strongest objects in the MCU that is not an Infinity Stone and Thor's hammer, that's a pretty good statement. That on top of her seemingly simplistic, easy takeover of the mythical military land of Asgard, this movie pretty quickly kills off the Warriors 3 without much fanfare or remembrance. Somehow Thor never really brings up the fact, weirdly. Hopefully his next movie with Sif will at least mention this. At least Hogan lasts a little longer. His action fighting skill set almost mandates it. I mean, did you see the new Mortal Kombat movie? Hopefully his character of Lord Raiden gets a little more pow 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 lightning attack powers in the next outing. This movie is loaded with jokes, the physical humor and deadpan nature of things verging on sheer absurdity. If you've seen the FX vampire comedy What We Do in the Shadows, which you really should, you will feel right at home with that same level of comedy. With Thor movies alone, this is easily the funniest. And while that may not be the reason it's the best, this light-hearted epic tale has good world-building, action, and narrative structure even if it tries to balance a ton of different diverging storylines. It especially takes ages for all of it to come back together. Jeff Goldblum will never be the most intimidating villain. His live-action video game role as a dancing Dracula will never not be amazing, but he doesn't have to be the most scary, built-up bad guy. He has more of a minor inconvenience at best, and it's a great way to bring Thor, Loki, the Hulk, and another new Asgardian in Valkyrie together. But man, does he make this movie so good. And even his rumors of being in Thor 4 will be amazing. Like, seemingly everyone's going to be in the new Disney Plus Marvel show What If. Which is not getting a ton of press, but could easily be one of the most fun animated things to come out. And it may be the last new thing we get to hear Chadwick Boseman in, which is a bit of a somber note. But back to more fun things in this movie. There's something hilarious about Loki always finding a way to connive and weasel his way into things. This timeline's version gets a bit of a swan song here, but this new TV show will hopefully explain some more things and allegedly find a way to figure out his return in Thor Love and Thunder, which is shaping up to be a fairly packed movie itself, like Spider-Man No Way Home. I teased it before, but there's something that feels like just forced about having to retcon the Infinity Gauntlet on Asgard being a fake. Nothing more just it being a fake. That will always come off as a bit lame of an explanation to fix something after the fact. It takes about half of the movie to get our first Hulk introduction, and this Planet Hulk storyline take, it really is and was a good way to give these characters a chance in the spotlight after their omission from Civil War. This was needed. And even a random space storyline can't take away from other MCU moments. That Loki, how do you like it moment after Thor gets thrown across the floor, just like Loki did courtesy of the Hulk in the first Avengers movie. This franchise, like I mentioned in the previous Marvel movies, loves giving Heimdall one big action moment. In this movie, there's almost two and a half. And that, once again, is no different here. Idris Elba is a delight, and his role here, while hilariously brief, at least lets him do cool sword-fighting moments and say cool things in his gravelly voice. I just wish he could have had a more action-oriented team-up moment fighting side-by-side side with Thor, and I get that the end of the movie kind of has that, but not nearly to what I was referring to. In the same way that our first 
Hulk and Thor reunion was awesome to see. The same is true when meeting for the first time in ages our first human version in Bruce Banner. Their relationship, be it Hulk or Bruce, plays well with Thor. While this movie genuinely looks beautiful most of the time, that brief, incredible, cinematic Flight of the Valkyries flashback fight with Pegasuses and all, we need more of that stuff. It's a unique team-up to include Valkyrie, Thor, Hulk with Loki, and while you never really trust him, especially through this movie, the redemption arc of having Loki finally help Asgard and Thor, like they're taking on the big bad together as brothers, it's a perfect capping arc, even with his almost immediate death in the next movie, and I'm fascinated and curious what the Disney Plus show will be like. Random moment thought on this movie. There are only so many unique birthday songs. We know the standard one. The Beatles have a pretty good one. But otherwise, movies have given us some brief birthday bangers. Happy Death Day has a great ringtone version. And here, Jeff Goldblum belting out, It's my birthday! over like an 80 synth score. That is something I need on my phone one of these days. That and the Dexter theme. That could be a great email notification sound. While the final culmination of Planet Gladiator and seemingly every single Asgardian but one finally showing up for the big fight against Hela, there's an amazing blend of humor and action. While I have trouble at times getting too invested in Hela, another big bad with world domination ideas, not unlike a slightly less likable version of Ego from Guardians 2. The Thor villains will always feel lesser in contrast to Tom Hindleston's Loki. Maybe Christian Bale will do some good next time around and give him a run for his money. And while they're May have been many arms and hands lost in the MCU. Only a few eyes have gotten gone in the MCU. And Thor losing an eye, which can never look too gory, I get it. It's a fun added stakes-building thing. It matters. All the big battles here have set-piece moments for the full loaded cast. Hulk taking on a big wolf. Thor becoming more of a badass, even if it's clearly short-lived with him getting wrecked immediately off-screen by Thanos. The end is a fun enough turn from the standard of not actually saving Asgard, but in turn to his vision a bit, I guess, from Avengers Age of Ultron, setting off Ragnarok to save the day. It's a fun turn, and the end is explosive, and also kicks off the pinnacle of the MCU in the tail end of the Infinity War saga. Overall, this is another Phase 3 movie that does some amazing things and keeps the overall quality going strong. No list this week. We need to get through one more half, a little over half of this supersized Phase 3 before we can get a complete list out. Then we can start all over again with Phase 4, kicking off with Black Widow in the beginning of next month. What are your favorites of these Phase 3 movies? Let me know on social at either Movies or knickknack underscore IC on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And before I go, quick shout out. And congrats to my sister on starting a new gig at Vanderbilt. Well, cinephiles, tune in next week for the exciting conclusion of Nick Knack Goes to the Movies, the Marvel Cinematic Universe Analysis. Are you not entertained? I think this is going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I don't like goodbyes. Let's just call this See You Later, Alligator.